This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name, I almost said Medina Parwana. Her name is Ellen Zentner, and she is the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. She has a fascinating career and is one of the highest ranked women in the world of finance today. Uh, She is very, very insightful, bringing a unique perspective to really what has been, uh, we talked about this during the podcast, a boys club filled with uh, middle-aged white dudes who are uh, the average economist of days gone by. And Ellen, and I couldn't agree more, argues that the more diversity of opinion and thought we have in various organizations, the less likely we are to have groupthink, the more likely we are to consider different perspectives. And that's enormously helpful when you have literally hundreds of billions of dollars uh, at risk in the marketplace. And and being able to look at everything from that perspective is enormously helpful. This was a fascinating conversation. If you are at all interested in economics, Wall Street, how big firms operate, what it's like to travel around the world speaking to clients and have them ask you all sorts of really interesting questions, then you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Morgan Stanley's Ellen Zentner. My special guest today is Ellen Zentner. She is currently the chief U.S. economist for Morgan Stanley. Uh, Previously, she had held senior economist positions with such august firms as Nomura and Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi. Previous to joining Morgan Stanley, she was a senior economist with the Texas State Comptroller's Office. Ellen Zentner, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks. Thanks, Barry. So that's a kind of interesting progression. How do you go from Texas State Comptroller and the office overseeing Texas's, I guess, government spending and We tax held revenue, the purse strings. Right? To, a, I guess it would be somewhat similar to a big brokerage firm like Morgan Stanley. Yeah, I don't know. Working uh, private versus public um, is very different. It's a different pace of life. Uh, it's a different focus of study. Um, I think starting out uh, in government is a great way to cultivate uh, the career of an economist because you can start out in a slower-paced environment where you can really learn deeply and think those deep thoughts we're supposed to have time to think but often don't have time mm-hmm. uh, when you move into investment banking. Um, and for me, it was a great first job out of graduate school. Uh, the no-brainer was to go back to Austin, Texas, where I'm from, and work for the state government. We were just in Austin. It's such a fabulous city. It, it was a 10-pound trip because the food there is so fantastic. I imagine you got in a lot of barbecue. A lot of barbecue. So so what years were you working in the controller's office? Uh, so I was there from 98 to 2003. So you missed the great financial crisis. Right. I had the uh, uh, lovely experience of being right in the thick of it in New York by then. But Texas did miss, uh, miss it in large part because... Uh, of having a rainy day fund, which I think after the financial crisis was a great example to other state governments that, you know, in in, in good times uh, when revenues were good in the state of Texas or are good, especially in energy, uh-huh. uh, you siphon those off. 
past a certain point and put them in a so-called rainy day fund to tap should you ever need it. Um, and I think after the financial crisis, it was the first time that Texas ever had to tap uh, its rainy day fund. But it's one reason why it's been able to keep its AAA rating. F- financial uh, planning 101. Right, it's Have a, a lot couple of, of months set counter-cyclical, aside. Uh, that precautionary savings that unfortunately America's households didn't have after the financial crisis, sure. but, but Texas had. And there's a little known thing about Texas that I find fascinating that given the boom and bust cycle with energy long before the great financial crisis, they used to, I believe they have something, I want to say it's it's in the state constitution, that you cannot use your home mortgage, your home equity for cash out financing. So Texas had a much lower rate of default and subsequent issues, foreclosures than the rest of the country. Yeah, I think that, and I could also draw a line between that to uh, Japan. And of course, I was working for a Japanese firm at the time of the financial mm-hmm. crisis. And one of the thing I w- things I witnessed at Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi was I was there at the time that we... Uh, not literally, I did not walk a check over to Morgan Stanley, but <laughs> a check was walked over to Morgan Stanley in theory, and a, and a chunk of Morgan Stanley was purchased. Um, and now there's this amazing partnership between MUFG, uh-huh. Mitsubishi United Financial Group, right. uh, and, and Morgan Stanley, because the Japanese were the ones that were cash rich at the time right. of the financial crisis, because they had already gone through their big financial crisis. 30 years earlier. <laughs> they did not participate in the mortgage crisis. Uh, they were not over leveraged in that area. And so they had a lot of cash to deploy. Uh, and it was much needed by by uh, many of the firms that were bought up at that time. So, so I'm going to sort of jump ahead. But given this relationship that came out of the financial crisis, how has that impacted Morgan Stanley uh, as an international company? Has that broadened their footprint around the globe? Uh, it absolutely has. Uh, and Morgan Stanley already had a strong presence sure. in Asia, but by partnering with MUFG, opening access to, to markets more fully and mind share across more of the global economy, I think it's been a fantastic partnership. Was it a coincidence that this deal took place and then you end up at Morgan Stanley? Or did you just happen out of this relationship to meet people and one thing led to another. It, it was a coincidence. Um, I'm I, When I began at Morgan Stanley back in 2013, my colleagues at Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi had felt like I had come full circle. I was back in the family, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and But I'll tell you, uh, probably the most important reason of how I became connected at Morgan Stanley um, is that I'm a nice person. Barry, and I I always say this, you've got to be a nice person. And when people think about who do you want to work with, who do you want to have on your team? Uh, the I'm ones, this down. yes, write it down. Be a nice person. It's, it's it's very simple, but it's not something everyone can do. Um, and especially does, in finance, we've you, heard of yellers and screamers, and exactly. But you will be rewarded. And so when people, uh, when we all reach out to each other, when we're networking, saying, "Hey, I've got an open spot on my team. Who have you worked with in the past? Who do you really like? Who do you think I should reach out to?" Uh, if you were a jerk and nobody liked working with you, you're not going to be one of the names on that list. And then that's. Exactly Exactly how I came about to be recommended for a position at Morgan Stanley was because I was good people. And you started as a senior economist, and how long have you been chief economist at Morgan I Stanley? I became chief economist at Morgan Stanley in February of 2015. Oh, so you've been here for 
in the role for over two years. Yeah, for over two years. Yeah, it, to me, and and uh, judging from your reaction, it, it sounds like it's been a lengthy time. But let me tell you, one of the things I love about Morgan Stanley is that people are shocked when they hear that I've only been there a total of four years. Because you talk they're to lifers. anyone, they're lifers. The longevity is amazing, and it, and it uh, says something uh, about Morgan Stanley as a place to work. It really is a family, um, and it just makes me feel good that there's there's just not a lot of turnover. We were talking earlier about the transition from private sector to public sector. You had an interesting experience this past election. How did the politics that have gotten kind of crazy in America affect clients investing and just generally interacting with Morgan Stanley customers? You know, I think this is this is definitely uh, this has definitely been a unique election cycle. Uh, and I know that we've beat that word unique to death, it feels. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, I don't believe I've ever experienced uh, emotions being this high. And uh, it affecting sort of, let's say, the emotional data this much, the survey-based data of how do you feel. And it swings uh, back Back it has forth, been too. swinging wildly. There are massive divergences between, say, uh, your your Trump voter that was middle income America, where uh, you can see that uh, by voter preference, consumer confidence is a record high for Republicans, but at a record ho- low for Democrats. And we saw a similar similar split among clients and among uh, my internal colleagues as well. Just trying to dissect, which economists generally, I believe, are, are very good at, staying mm-hmm. objective and trying not to let emotion drive your work. That was my next question, For, is how do you keep clients from allowing their own emotions, political biases, just reactions to the craziness on TV from impacting their investing and trading? Uh, what you have to do is be the, is remain the calm voice in the room. And just keep coming back to the fundamentals, the fundamentals, the fundamentals, and try to create um, a story with a very strong argument based in fundamentals so that you you just keep coming back to that and saying, let's keep emotions out of it. Let's keep feelings uh, out of it and just stick to the basics. And that has been extraordinarily difficult uh, post-election, where emotions have run high. Uh, What I like now, and what makes me more confident in the U.S. outlook going forward, is that I can see that investors uh, have adjusted their expectations for fiscal policy over time. And you don't see companies uh, providing forward guidance on what Congress might deliver. And you you hear households talking more uh, uh, realistically about what Congress might deliver. And so that makes me more confident that what we're seeing in the economic activity is being driven by a stronger global economy stronger fundamental U.S. economy legitimately and uh, not being driven anymore by expectations of what Congress may deliver. Because as we all know, campaigning is easy, policymaking is difficult. For sure. Uh, and so, so I think I think that makes me less uh, worried about what happens in the event of complete fiscal failure. You mentioned campaigning. I think we were all kind of hoping that once the election came and went, everything would settle down. And here we are in the middle of summer where more than six months through the the first year of the first term of of President Trump. And you travel extensively. You meet with clients in the United States, abroad. I know when I travel around, it's all anybody wants to talk about is President Trump. 
Are you finding similar things that it dominates, at least in the beginning of the conversation, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, it doesn't matter. Everybody is transfixed by the world's greatest reality show. Yeah, you know, actually, I'm glad that you brought up regional differences because uh, here in the U.S. it has petered out. Right, My conversations with clients have gone back to simply talking about the economy, talking about global mm-hmm. central banks and liquidity and everything other than fiscal policy, almost like we've gone back to a, I'll believe it when I see it. Right. Um, but when I do go abroad, it is a very different story. And the conversations do still start out with what's going on with politics, with Congress, uh, you know, I, 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 at first it was uh, uh, our investors outside of the U.S. trying to understand what is the political process? How do things move through Congress? How much power does the president have to do X, Y, and Z unilaterally? Or how much does mm-hmm. a president need Congress for? And working, sometimes it would take an entire client meeting just working through the process, mm-hmm. which could at times open their eyes to, oh, okay, policymaking is difficult. Is it? Uh, are they perplexed by the show? Are they um curious because uh, I've recently been in in Germany I've been in in uh, various places in, in Europe the response in different areas are, are it's almost detached bemusement versus the UK is like oh we have the same thing here we are we're on the same page so not exactly brexit and and the most recent, um, change candidates seem to be very different. What What are you finding overseas? Is it a uniform situation, or is it full-on like, wow, what's going on there? Well, I would say the bemusement uh, comes up in meetings, but it's very fleeting, sort of at the mm-hmm. beginning, kind of chuckling over whatever has happened in the media most recently in right. the U.S. And then we dive right into more serious issues. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, I, I, I get around quite often around the global economy, but not so often that clients do want to uh, uh, I'll, I'll use the word waste waste an entire hour of, of uh, client time you know but it comes up that talk, often being, being bemused over US politics but mm-hmm. it will come up as just a sort of a quick quip or two at the beginning of the meeting and then we move on to more serious things so let me ask you a more serious question because you have said previously you love going out and talking with clients who are they and other than politics what sort of stuff do they lean on you for so, again, going to uh, folks outside of the U.S., um, uh, you know, it's different when I sit down in front of equities investors versus fixed income investors. Mm-hmm. Fixed income investors, um, they love the nuances of how every uh, economist will interpret, uh, uh, parse, fed, speak, mm-hmm. uh, and the data differently. Uh, and the fact that you can have two economists that see the economy the same way, but have two completely different calls on what the Fed will do. And so really working through the nuances of uh, how is it that I listen to the Fed? How do I come to conclusions of what I think I've discerned from, from Fed speak and meetings with Fed policymakers? Uh, working through those details, I think, is most important for them. It's a very presentation light and conversation heavy hmm. meeting. When I sit down with equities investors, it's more 
therefore talking talk me through the fundamentals see me how company show me how companies are positioned where are they investing uh, how do consumers spend if they're given more tax dollars uh, will interest rates simply be higher or lower at this time next year you know and it's a much more presentation heavy show me the client deck meeting uh, and so that's why I think my trips around the globe can be very dynamic because as part of the economics team we have a foot in fixed income, we have a foot in equities, and we basically service all sides of the firm. Uh, and so it can be very dynamic meetings in one trip. And I think that keeps it very, very interesting for me. Let's talk a little bit about um, your time at Morgan Stanley. You've been there about four years. You have a very high profile job in a field that's dominated by men. How is that changing? Because I've noticed more and more women are starting to assume senior positions in big firms. Uh, they are. Uh, it's fi- still lagging tremendously. Of course, it's still lagging explains. tremendously. And uh, I can tell you that we spend an unbelievable amount of time at Morgan Stanley uh, beating to death all the ways. And have we uncovered every way possible to uh, uh, lower attrition rates uh, for women in the firm uh, and keep them moving forward and be sh- being sure that there's nothing on our end that we haven't done in order to remove barriers to the moving higher. Specifically in economics, we saw Chair Yellen spend time on this, right. uh, giving speeches about uh, women in economics. I can tell you that when I was in graduate school, uh, there were four of us ladies in graduate school in economics. Out of how many? Uh, about 200. Really? Yeah. That's a small number. It was very tiny. So what does it mean? Uh, But today, right, I am not the only woman on the economics team in the U.S. I'm not the only uh, chief economist at Morgan Stanley that is a woman. Elga Barsh, our chief Mm -hmm. European economist, uh, has been there many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is unique uh, that Morgan Stanley has more than one female chief economist in the firm. Um, I think... Overall, finance is is doing a horrible job having women in high positions, Mm -hmm. but we are doing, we are making leaps and bounds trying uh, to overcome that. It seems that the industry, however slowly the changes are taking place, it's really starting to move in the right direction with miles still to go. Oh, yes. Well, and that's exactly how we would characterize it. Uh, when I say finance overall as a sector is doing a horrible job, mm-hmm. that is a feeling shared to the highest rank in Morgan Stanley. Really? Right? It's not some uh, you know outlandish statement that I'm making. Uh, it's just understood that the industry still has a long way to go. It's a long but, process to groom people to take over. Exactly. Big- and what we find at Morgan Stanley, and this is probably not unique to Morgan Stanley, is that when you look at our analyst class of new analysts coming in, mm-hmm. uh, it's an extremely good balance between men and women, but the attrition rate is higher for women as they get higher up the chain. Why is that? Is it because they don't come back after leaving to have children? Uh, we don't know. We're scrubbing the data and working with every individual segment within the firm to be sure that the data aren't telling us that we're not creating the right environment for them to come back. Hmm, that's uh, interesting. We've got a very strong return to work program that's been very successful. And I can tell you what we do recognize and what I recognize firsthand is that you get much more diversity of thought on an economics team 
when when it's diverse between male and female and all walks of life. I'm mm-hmm. not just talking about a gender um, difference, but it's I can how tell you, avoid you group then. I developed a love for studying U.S. household behavior. Mm-hmm. From very early on in my career, it was one of the first things I did at the state of Texas out of graduate school. Uh, and I also feel, uh, and maybe this is a biased view, that that I bring a unique perspective to studying the U.S. household because as a woman, I'm extremely connected to running the household. Uh, and so I feel also from being from Texas, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't grow up on this island of Manhattan. <laughs> and so I am not so far removed that I don't remember what the average American experience is like in the U.S. Uh, and if I were not on the U.S. economics team and it was all uh, uh, men uh, run by your typical ch- mid- middle-aged white male economist, right? Mm-hmm. they might miss that perspective. There are a number of Fed governors and chiefs of the Federal Reserve banks who are either currently held by a woman as, as president or have previously been held uh, by a woman. What does that shift really over the past decade say to young women who may be considering a career in finance or economics, how important are those roles to driving the industry towards a little more gender parity? Uh, I think it's hugely important, right? If if I'm a young woman coming out of uh, school and I'm studying economics um, and I'm thinking about where do I see myself going? Where do I see myself five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? I might not think, uh, oh, just staff economist somewhere on some team, either on Wall Street or at a think tank or a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might I might actually think, which was the unthinkable just two decades ago, I might actually think that I could run the Fed one day or I could head one of the regional Federal Reserve banks. Let's talk a little bit about the intersection between economics and markets. So does the stock market drive the economy or does the economy drive the stock market or is it a little bit of each? Oh, Barry, I'm an economist. I'm going to say a little bit of each because you opened that door. Um, It's the chicken and the egg. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you'll have a strategist sit in this chair and tell you that it's the markets. Uh, And then you'll have an economist that sits in this chair and says it's the economy. Isn't the Uh, markets reflecting what the economy is doing or at least discounting what the economy is about to do? The discounting. So I will say that markets are forward-looking, but they're Mm -hmm. forward-looking and they're trying to anticipate when things have gotten as bad as they could possibly get or as good as they could possibly Mm -hmm. get. And typically, liquidity and and global flows drive the markets first before anyone can see what's going on. Uh, And so that that tends to sort of be the forward-looking piece that confirm, and then the economic data confirms that. So if you look at every business cycle, uh, and let's go back to the most uh, recent downturn, the financial crisis, the stock market reached its bottom first in March, mm-hmm. started turning up, and then the uh, ultimately the date that the MBER uh, said the recession was over was June mm-hmm. uh, of 2009. So it led the economy by a couple of months. Um, and, and on the flip side, in 07, I think the market peaked in October 07, NBER. December of 07. So again, two months ahead. Yeah, and so a lot of that is that uh, the wealth effect is huge earlier late in a cycle. So March, what happened at March? The stock market bottomed. It started uh, uh, racing higher uh, uh, and 
in in a cycle, when consumers start spending again, guess who are the ones that spend first? The wealthy. Because financial assets are rising, uh, the wealthy, the top 20% of households in income uh, in the U.S., income holders in the U.S., make up 40% of all spending. So Say that again, the top 20% the, the, of so income. The, so the top income quintile, so the top mm-hmm. 20% of, of uh, income group in the U.S. makes up 40% of all consumer spending. That makes spending. sense. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Right, they're buying big ticket items exactly. goods. So when wealth starts to recover, uh, as the cycle is taking off, the expansion is taking off, they're getting out there buying uh, motor vehicles and recreational vehicles and motorcycles and purchasing trips abroad and let me push back a little bit on this because a we'll, we'll have a, a fuller debate about the wealth effect uh during the podcast portion but if you remember back in 2009 there was kind of a, a rising um sense that people were a little intimidated about uh either conspicuous consumption or ostentatious spending and even the wealthy or at least this was in the papers at the time were a little circumspect at really big ticket items and we saw people come out of their caves and start to spend but it wasn't real mayhem until a year or two later yeah so i'll give you the exact so and so you're absolutely right right that that uh uh, it was a little too. You, you didn't want to get out there and do a bunch of chest chest thumping uh, right. when your neighbor was still out of right. a job, uh, and because this was a very severe downturn. And in fact, if you look at consumer confidence overall, let's just look at it in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. The first five years of the recovery, uh, I simply call it the phase of reparation, because it took five years for consumer confidence to finally reach what was a normal level. In expansion, mm-hmm. so and that's about the time that we finished uh, deleveraging the household balance sheet as well. Uh, that we actually finished licking our wounds and and paying down debt and defaulting on debt, et cetera. So I'll tell you when it did finally kick in for the wealthy, uh, and uh, because you can't hold the wealthy down for too long, right. Barry. So in 2013, the S and P 500 was up about 30 percent. And uh, we we scrub 300 different categories of consumer spending, and that's how we know who's spending, mm-hmm. who's doing the spending. Um, during that year, you saw consumer confidence among the highest income groups track the S&P 500 one for one, and personal aircraft was the single strongest category of spending, really? followed by pleasure boats. Wow, that's fascinating. And if you think about... Also, was it March 2013, S&P 500 breaks out to a new all-time high, got above the pre-crisis levels, arguably kicking off a new secular bull market. It would make sense. They're the wealth effect. The wealthiest people who own most of the stock are going to go out and spend that money. But I never saw that data on pleasure boats and aircraft. That's fascinating. It's it's interesting. So it, it uh, I, I love... Um I love showing charts that will really make clients think that I think are charts that they haven't seen from anyone else. And so it, one of those charts is the the consumer confidence that I mentioned of the highest income group versus the S&P 500, where it just tracks it higher. And it always makes me think of that that saying, and I'm sure I won't get it exactly right, but it's something about uh, uh, money can't buy you happiness, but it sure makes the suffering easier. Okay, and, the, and, the and, version I remember is um, David Lee Roth said, 
uh, of Van Halen once said, mm-hmm. money can't buy you happiness, but it could pull you up in a yacht right next to it. Exactly. Which is pretty funny. Get you about as close as you can. And so, yeah, <laughs> it took a while, but you can only hold the wealthy back for so long. And uh, and so they were really getting their feathers ruffled by the gains in financial market wealth that, that were just, I mean, just incredible gains in 2013. And by 2012, we had already blown past the previous peak toward the end of 2012 for, for financial assets, mm-hmm. wealth. And and I tell you what uh, is another Meaning chart. Meaning total, total, uh, total US wealth. Total wealth in financial assets. Okay. Uh, of course, real estate wealth was another matter. We've only just popped into positive territory mm-hmm. there uh, where we've got positive uh, uh, real estate wealth in the first quarter of this year, finally. Finally, relative um, to the financial crisis, relative on to a the financial crisis, level. yes, yes, uh, and so I think it's interesting that that if I were to point to another chart uh, that surprises seems to surprise everyone is who do you think saves in the U.S. It's the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Other income groups don't save. Most of most of them live paycheck to paycheck. Sure. Uh, the savings rate is largely determined by the wealthiest income group in the U.S. So if here's another great chart. If you take financial assets mm-hmm. and you map it against the personal savings rate in the U.S., it shows nearly a perfect inverse relationship. As financial assets rise, the savings rate falls because the wealthy get out there and spend more. So what does it mean that generally uh, uh, only the highest income um, group in the United States is saving and, and the rest of the country isn't? What, what does that say to us, say about us as a society in terms of our propensity to either save or invest. Well, the the savings rate overall um, has come down from where it peaked after the financial crisis, um, but it hasn't come down all the way. So it still indicates there's a little more precautionary savings out there than there was before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's been any fundamental change in behavior here. I think the wealthy are still mostly the ones who are the savers in the U.S. The difference for the middle and lower income households is that the debt burden is not as high. Uh, So the crimp that they feel, say, when interest rates are rising, Mm -hmm. uh, the the crimp they would feel on the interest expense uh, uh, on their their outstanding debt uh, uh, is not going to be as as acutely felt as before. There is some cushion there, but I wouldn't say that there's been some fundamental change in how they approach precautionary savings. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I think is interesting now, so going back to to wealth, uh, and going back to the chart of the highest income group confidence matching the climb in S&P 500, if you look at the consumer confidence of the lower income groups, it's basically looked like a slow bleed upward, upward tracking wage gains. So that very kind of slow bleed upward in wage gains has really translated into to whom? The households that rely a lot on labor income. So who have I left out? I've noticeably not talked about wealth for the middle. Um, And that's where the housing equity comes into play, because housing equity fell sharply. Uh, Housing prices, uh, once they reached their nadir, they flubbed along the bottom for a time, Mm -hmm. finally started turning up, say, in 2012, and have had some nice year-over-year increases in home price appreciation. But we only just moved into, again, at the national level, level, into positive territory for housing wealth overall in the first quarter of this year. Mm -hmm. So I think my focus... As a as a someone who loves studying the U.S. consumer, my focus is going to be the middle over the next couple of years because I think we're finally seeing wealth effects come through for them. So let, let's talk about two things you referenced because they're both really interesting. 
One is you talked about general um, deleveraging of the household in debt, but the story that I've been watching, and I'm not quite a believer that this is what's going to be our undoing, is the student debt rise. That That's clicked up through a few trillions. How significant is that to future household formation, home purchases, durable goods, et cetera. And then we could talk a little bit about uh, where we are on the labor cycle. Great. So I'm glad that you brought up um, student debt, because believe it or not, it actually does tie into this theme of housing equity Mm -hmm. as well. So uh, student loan debt is a problem. Uh, The the, uh, enrollment rates have been on a very pronounced upward trend for quite some time. But each time there's a downturn, you'll see that that enrollment rate escalate, uh, and then we revert back to previous trend. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, with the, the the depth of the downturn after the financial crisis and the length of it, sent many, many more uh, back to school seeking higher education, uh, and, and it's really default rates among those that sought higher education that have been the highest because they spent even more on school came out and still were facing just as horrible a labor market as when they went in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we saw uh, student debt that uh, ratchet higher and delinquencies on student debt ratchet higher, such that it became a, a hot button issue, at least for Democrats during the presidential election. Sort of that that uh, the idea that we would do some mass forgiveness on on student loans. I can tell you that delinquency rates have peaked. Mm-hmm. As the labor market has improved, enrollment rates have come off of of uh, the um, uh, the previous uh, the 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 trend that was the upward trend that was already established right for decades going into the financial crisis that was escalated. And now we're coming back down to that previous trend. So mm-hmm. it'll look like enrollment rates are softening, but they're not. They're really just coming back to that that pre-crisis trend. Here's what I think is so important. Uh, At the same time that we were pushing an unprecedented amount of students to enroll in school and take on incredible amounts of student debt, uh, we lost housing equity, which was a primary, the primary way families were paying for that student's tuition. Mm -hmm. So most of them, because who in their right mind was going to give a student in this labor market environment uh, a, a private loan for school. They were forced to government loans. Now, you can never default on a student loan that you got from the government. Barry, if you retire... There's no escaping that. There's no escaping that. If you retire at age 65 and you still haven't paid off your student loan, they will garnish your Social Security. How how much of an insult is that? Uh, Everybody else has to go through a legal process Except Uncle Sam, you default on that, they fine you wherever you are. Right. There's no getting out of it. Now, what do you think mom and dad do uh, if you default on your soft promise to pay them back after funding your education by pulling equity out of their home? Right. Nothing. Nothing. Exactly. And believe me, mom and dad know you're not paying them back when they give you that for your student loan. Uh, and so families weren't able to fund student loans in that way anymore. Uh, because they weren't able to pull equity out of the home. Now, we've, as I mentioned, we've just popped back into positive equity in housing in the first quarter of this year with home price appreciation that should continue. And we saw for the first time this year mortgage equity withdrawal pick up. 
So that means a future generation of students going into school now can go back to having college funded in the traditional way we used to fund college, which is going to alleviate the burden on them when they get out of college and start looking to buy a home. So while we've got sort of a lost generation right, that went into college during the financial crisis, came out and tried to get a job during the, and after the financial crisis, and will have their home buying plans delayed for a long time. Mm-hmm. And just big, durable goods purchase decisions are delayed for a long time. The, most, the best work on this has been done by the New York Fed that's looked into this very closely and how it delays. Household formation. Household formation, buyers, buying plans, list. everything. It has mm-hmm. a big economic impact. But the generation of kids now going into school, by the time they graduate, they're not going to be saddled anywhere near with the student debt burden, uh, at least not the government-issued student debt burden that the previous generation had. And that is not going to weigh on their decisions, their home purchasing decisions, in the same way as the unfortunate group, which is, you know, sometimes it's just the unfortunate timing of your birth. Dumb luck of when (laughs) you graduate college. Right, of when you graduate college. Um, It's not going to be the same for them. We have been speaking with Ellen Zentner. She is the chief uh, U.S. economist for Morgan Stanley. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ellen, so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a long time. Glad to be here. So we, um, I got easily distracted by many of your answers and didn't get to a number of questions that I definitely want to go back to. But we'll, ha- we'll have to start before, before we have a debate on the wealth effect. Let's at least talk about wages. Because um, you, you mentioned a few things that I think are fascinating. Where are we in the cycle, in the wage cycle? Are we finally starting to see an uptick in compensation? Or is it going to be, you know, flat wages for as far as the eye can see? So as the unemployment rate has come down, uh, we have seen wages, growth in wages increase but it's been pretty anemic, right? Mm-hmm. It's not been nearly to the extent you would think you would get, given how quickly the unemployment rate has fallen. Right. But the truth of the matter is, the unemployment rate uh, in this environment, with such a huge swath of the population uh, continuing to move further and further out into the age groups associated with very low participation rates mm-hmm. uh, in the labor force. There's Meaning a, more there's, older folks working. Right. More older folks working and retiring, leaving the labor force. There's this this uh, gravitational pull just from the demographic trend that, that pulls that unemployment rate lower. That's not indicative of a labor market that's getting tighter and tighter. So the point at which we reach a tight labor market, which would really start to push uh, wage growth up more quickly, is just simply a lot lower where 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 than where it has been in the past. Um, 
that said, the the growth in wages has been sort of on a pretty steady, slow bleed upward. What we do, Barry, and I find that a lot of our work on the U.S. economics team at Morgan Stanley is now we slice and dice it to a degree that we never had to before. Really? Uh, uh, because after financial crisis, there are lots of things that are going under the uh, on under the hood where you just can't look at anything in the aggregate anymore. And wages are a great example of that. Wage pressures have been rising much more quickly in areas of the labor market where we have been creating a lot of jobs. So more than 60% of all new jobs that we've created since the recovery began have been in the very uh, uh, typically low-wage paying service sector, low productivity enhancing right. areas of the economy like retail and leisure and hospitality uh, and home health care workers and temporary workers. And those are the areas where uh, as the unemployment rate has fallen, wages have accelerated there because we're hiring a lot more workers there and labor markets are actually tighter there. How significant are the raises in minimum wage to that cohort of of uh, the workforce? Well, let me put it two different ways. Uh, from a social economics perspective, it matters greatly for that worker making a minimum wage. Mm -hmm. From uh, a market perspective, not much. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you look at wage growth in the aggregate, what you're doing is raising wages for the most marginally paid worker, right. and their total wage bill just does not move the needle much in the aggregate. So there's no 401k. Very often there isn't health care. It's just a modest increase it's in salary. It's just a modest increase in salary uh, from what is already very low salary. Hmm. And remember, when states uh, raise their minimum wages, uh, uh, you know, in, in or when... Uh, let me back up. When we talk about if the federal government raises the minimum wage uh, and all of the discussion that ensues on both sides of the argument of is it good, is it bad, is it going to uh, – lead to higher un unemployment or is it necessary for those workers to have a living wage and survive? Oftentimes what's lost in that argument is that most states already pay above the federal minimum. So you oh, really, really have to look to see what states are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and individually, states have been, many, many states have been raising the minimum wage. Um, and but those are really some of the higher success. You know, when we see California or Seattle or even, I was going to say Washington State, or even the, the city of Seattle, raise minimum, raised minimum wage, that's really very specific to a part of the country that's just booming. But what does that mean for Oklahoma or Arkansas or Kentucky, where you may not have the same, in, in this case, the technology-driven boom towns, what do their minimum wage increases mean relative to uh, states that aren't doing as well? So typically, so you do have to differentiate state by state. I think it is very important, right? Because the cost of living in one state, which I think is what sure. you're getting at, is very different than another state. So raising, you, you can raise the minimum wage to $15 in Seattle, but you can't do it in Birmingham, Alabama. Impossible, right. Uh, and, and so this is from the a company by company perspective. This is the argument that they'll make. And there actually has been a good body of academic work that has suggested that raising the minimum wage, particularly in, in states like Alabama, uh, uh, doesn't necessarily lead to immediate layoffs uh, in certain in service sector industries, but it certainly depresses hiring 
uh, from there forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think it is something that has to be looked at on a state-by-state basis. If you're going to do it at the federal level, uh, I think something like the earned income tax credit, which we already have in place, Mm -hmm. which you can expand, is a much better way to do it than a federal minimum wage. So rather than putting the burden on businesses and telling where businesses have no choice but to adjust their practices because they're being forced to raise wages, whether it's good for that particular business in that particular state in that particular town. Uh, Doing it through expanding the earned income tax credit is a way you hit the lowest paid workers in the U.S. and the government, meaning the taxpayer more broadly, is bearing the burden of that cost. See, my beef about minimum wage outside of the high earning cities, the East Coast, the West Coast, has always been, do you remember the McHelp line that McDonald's had set up? They were hiring people, they were capping them at 30 hours, and then they were sending them to aid to dependent children and welfare and Medicaid, effectively having the taxpayer subsidize the labor force of a profitable company. As a taxpayer, I always was offended by that. And that's what first sent me looking at minimum wage. It's, wait, why why are you subsidizing your workforce with taxpayer dollar if 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 i need to give you a minimum wage raise in order to have these people no longer qualify you should pay for that not me and if it means the burger is going to cost 50 cents more i don't care burgers shouldn't be taxpayer subsidized and i think a lot of that sort of gets lost in the minimum wage debate. That's very specific to a handful of companies, yeah, Walmart, very, McDonald's. You know, it's a very sensitive topic. It's um, with, a, with a lot of um, heated debate on both sides of the coin. I think one of the, one of the most interesting um, uh, things I think I've studied in the past in terms of company behavior on the back of minimum wages mm-hmm. when uh, we were facing um, I think starting in in 2014 or so we were going to be facing a, a lot of states that were raising minimum wages and so to get out ahead of that Walmart raised yes the wages of its workers mm-hmm. across the board um, and I thought that it was a brilliant marketing um, tool for them because you're going to be forced um, via a lot of it, your states right. to be raised anyway. Why not do it ahead of time and get the pat on the back for doing this public service first? And on top of that, uh, there has been a, re- a, a, a credible study out there that many of Walmart's workers spend their paychecks in Walmart. Absolutely. So pay them more. It comes right back to you and increase purchasing in your stores. It's brilliant. Plus, Walmart had a big issue with, once we came out of the financial crisis, they had a big uh, employee turnover issue and a big, not only retention, but recruitment issue. And it's very expensive to find and hire people and then train them in a Walmart, and then they leave after three months. And so the most recent, I want to say it was last February, maybe it was a quarter before that, CEO of Walmart came out and said, our retention numbers are better, our, our employee turnover numbers have reduced, and the pay increase effectively is paid for itself, which is really a shocking thing because the previous management was really pushing back against uh, 
this this was very much a sea change in yeah in i think attitude. it's a great example of how uh, a company can very creatively get around something that's a sticky issue right. like like minimum wage increase and it doesn't have to be the end of the world we were talking a little earlier or i was referencing the technology boom on the west coast but since we're talking about labor how significant has been technology and automation and software to either the wage malaise or the quality of jobs that we are creating? So it's a huge topic, productivity, automation, uh, replacing jobs with robots. Um, and it's something that's very difficult to see in real time. Um, I think this is going to be something, Barry, where we wake up 20 years from now and realize that we're living through WALL-E, the movie, right right, right now. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that um, uh, from an economic theory perspective, uh, it's easy for me to argue why putting in kiosks at McDonald's is a good thing because it will raise the productivity uh, of its workers and ultimately uh, wages follow productivity. Uh, you know, raising productivity. If a business is, uh, makes that capex, that capital expenditure to raise its productivity, productivity drives profits. And so, even as 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 uh, profits rise, you can pay your workers more, mm -hmm. but your labor share of income. Uh, your uh, labor share of costs does not rise. So you're going to have uh, fewer people making more money, theoretically. Right. But it lifts wages of everyone because those workers that have been displaced, right, our uh, business overall expands and you have to hire them in other ways. So for McDonald's, go back to that example, they put in more kiosks where you go in and order. Mm -hmm. So you no longer need the people at the front desk taking your money. You're ordering from the kiosk. But maybe they're able to service more uh, folks faster at lunchtime and produce a lot more lunches in one hour. And so they need more people working behind the counter. Plus so they extend their existing workforce and they're able to pay their existing workforce more. Plus so, somebody's building those kiosks. Someone's doing the, making the screens, writing the software. They're exactly. So we can all, so the theory is kind of easy to explain, right? Mm -hmm. Why higher productivity, wages tend to track productivity higher. And so why you, uh, as a policymaker, uh, whether you're a fiscal policymaker or a monetary policymaker or economist, you all want productivity to be higher because it still is the best indicator of overall uh, uh, health and well-being of your economy, of your labor force. Mm -hmm. Uh, the di the difficult thing to deal with is that there's always a temporal effect. There's always a segment of the population where labor is displaced for a time, uh, and ab either that labor is never absorbed back, um, or it takes time to absorb it into other industries that are expanding. Uh, and so um, I think that's the difficult part to deal with, is the so, temporal effect. So let, let's get a little wonky since you mentioned productivity. We've seen really mediocre productivity gains, not just for quarters or years, but this seems to be going on for decades. What's the old joke? The, the, the productivity effect is seen everywhere except in the statistics. Do we have a productivity issue or do we have a productivity measuring issue? Okay, so the measuring issue, since you brought it up, because that is a that is a, um, I a said hot, we're going into the a, weeds. It's a hot button <laughs> issue. Measurement mismeasurement has always been there. Mm -hmm. And so as an economist, I would want to show that mismeasurement is worse today than it has been in the past. And I'm not sure that I can show that. Um, because I certainly don't want to hang my hat on trying to say that 
uh, oh, well, productivity is not low like everyone thinks it is. It's just simply mismeasurement. I think that's too cute, too easy of an explanation because I think mm-hmm. mismeasurement has always been been there. Does it exist today? Absolutely. Um, but was it there in the past as well? Absolutely. I can remember with the dot-com boom or, or the Y2K, companies going out and buying all of this software that was going to help them kind of get over that hump of Y2K. Um, it it uh, took... Uh, the government about five years to fully reflect how all of that that purchasing of, of software and deploying across business platforms affected productivity. Um, so I do believe there's a, a, ever present and always mismeasurement. But if you look at trend productivity over time, it's been falling for decades over time. Uh, we've been moving from a, 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 a uh, production-led economy, mm-hmm. uh, or let's say manufacturing-led economy, sure. to a service sector-led economy. Manufacturing has much higher associated rates of productivity than service industries. And so over time, trend productivity has slowed. Now, do I think that it's flat to up half a percent, which is where it's been over the past five or six years. No, I don't think that's trend rate of productivity. I think we can see that after the financial crisis, there was an extreme shortfall in capital expenditures, Mm -hmm. um, where only just now I'm seeing the kind of data that shows me companies are convinced now that it's time to go ahead and start adding uh, to CapEx and doing some capital deepening. And part of that is the the um, cyclical rebound we're finally seeing in this cycle from global stronger global growth and just companies in the U.S. having underbuilt, underinvested for so long and labor costs rising to a point where now uh, capital is being incentivized over labor. Okay, so I don't think productivity is going to be stuck flat on its back where it has been for five or six years. But I think around 1% productivity is probably the best we get to because I think the run rate of uh, uh, investment in the U.S. is probably around 3 to 5%, not 7 to 9%, which is where it's been in the past. And a lot of that is just elongating that trend, continued trend that where is the economy growing? It's growing in the service side. So let me push back on that a little bit or, or share with you the, the standard pushback. When we were manufacturing, you could count the number of widgets and how much they were sold for and what it cost to actually create these individual uh, widgets. And our productivity gains were easy to see and measure. Today, given the rise of technology, it's so much more nuanced. Let's take this conversation just as an example. 30 years ago, this is a radio broadcast that reaches whoever it reaches. And so the amount of time and energy we put into this is heard by X number of listeners. Today, this will get done. It'll get edited. It'll get nicely polished up. And in two or three weeks, it'll go up on Apple iTunes and SoundCloud and Overcast and Bloomberg.com. And not only will it be listened to by a whole—plus it'll go on the radio. So you get the original audience times four or times six— but it persists forever, and somebody two years from now does an Ellen Zentner Google search and said, oh, what's this podcast that, that Zentner is, did? That is terrifying. It will haunt me for the rest <laughs> of my life, essentially, is what Well, we'll edit saying. out all the cuss words. No well, one will hear the terrible things you've said. So here's another wrinkle on productivity, which, which um, uh, I think presents an interesting um, – not dilemma, but in, but let's say food for thought for policymakers mm-hmm. uh, going forward. Um, we can see in the data that we track 
uh, on R&D spending, research and development, we can see that it has been soaring. Yet, and, and typically productivity would follow that, yet productivity hasn't. Mm-hmm. So where, where is all that R&D going? What is it going into? There must be some change going on. And what we found when we look at where is that R&D going, um, it, rather than old world technology that that R&D is going into, say developing a robot arm to work in an auto manufacturing facility, a lot of that is going into the the biotech space. So we're elongating the age of an 80-year-old to 90 years. Mm -hmm. And while that's extremely socially desirable, it's not a productivity enhancer. It's not going to help that that 80-year-old work for 10 more years at, at Walmart as a greeter. All right, I'm just saying it's not a traditional productivity okay. enhancer. Now, here's another thing. Uh, and so does that mean we don't do it? Mm-hmm. We shouldn't do it because it doesn't raise it productivity in a, in a GDP marketable way, mm-hmm. right? And I would think the answer is no, we should absolutely do it. But it's not going to translate into productivity in the way we are used to. Here's another example. There's been a massive shift in R&D spending uh, in the area of consumer discretionary. Now, what the heck does that mean? We had to dig into it. It's Amazon. It's Amazon creating the type of platform that allows me to order a makeup product that I've run out of when I'm walking down the hallway to the bathroom, right? right? Within 15 seconds, I've placed a one-click order and ordered that makeup before I've even hit the bathroom stall. And now my productivity rises. Or what's happening instead is all of these technological advancements are helping you enjoy your life better. Mm -hmm. They're giving me more hours of my day back to do other things, to enjoy Because you don't have to myself. go to the mall to get whatever it is that you just ordered. Exactly. So is that worth nothing? Because it doesn't raise my productivity. It makes my life more enjoyable. Is there not an amenity value in that? Right, but it just it doesn't raise my quality of life, except that productivity is how we measure quality of so, life. So what's the old Drucker quote? Not everything that's measured that can be measured matters, and not everything that matters can be measured. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think that is the conundrum for policymakers because they're constantly disappointed with low productivity. Uh, and because that is economic theory tells you that's the single best indicator for standard of living in your economy. But Do you think no standard of be. living has not gone up it's in five or six done years? Nothing but gone. The fact that I don't have to go to the mall with my wife to get lipstick anymore, or whatever. Well, to you, it that's a big leap in quality of life. I, I actually <laughs> don't mind shopping. I we go through the malls. We make I make fun of stuff. It's entertainment. That's and not shopping, Barry. Barry's walking in and actually buying things and helping yeah. the economy. At, well, not walking you know, around it, making fun. We call it economic research or economic <laughs> stimulus, absolutely. But I would, given the choice between the half hour it takes to drive and park and actually get into a store and then do our thing and then head out, wait, I could just scroll through Amazon, find what I want in five minutes and save myself 90 minutes of my weekend? Hell yeah. That's Hence fantastic. the death of the mall. Well, no doubt about it. Well, we, you know, the United States has this huge retail footprint. We're overbuilt on a per capita basis, at least compared to Europe. And that is certainly going through its secular changes. Um, I could talk about this stuff forever. I could too. It's fascinating. But what I want to do is get to some Especially since you brought up shopping. Yeah. Oh, for sure. We could talk a ton about it. But let's instead jump into my favorite questions. Um, these are what I ask all my guests, and, and they're always kind of uh, generate interesting responses. Let's start with 
What's the most important thing people don't know about your background? Oh my gosh! I think if I if we keep it from a business perspective, any and so, perspective, any perspective at all. Uh, like I'm always surprised when someone says I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I'm like, what? But people have dropped that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm sure I've done a lot of amazing things. <laughs> <laughs> Just there's so many of them, nothing leaps to mind. Oh, exactly. There's so many of them. Uh, so keep it on the professional side. What what do people not know about you? I think if you were to start the conversation by saying, this is Ellen Zentner. She's U.S. Chief Economist of Morgan Stanley. And then work backwards to uh, how I started my career or work backwards even further to how I even approached university and went through school, that whole process. You would you would never backtrack to where I started mm-hmm. and draw a line to Chief Economist where did of you Morgan start? Stanley. What, what did you do at the beginning that I, didn't say economics in the future? When I was in high school... Um, You're going way back. Yeah, That's... when I was in high school, there was no... Just because I compare it to what my niece and nephew who are teenagers today are going through and mm-hmm. how they prepare for college. And I think, oh my God, I wasn't even thinking about college at your age. They I was thinking about middle school. having fun at in right. high school every day. We did not have a high school counselor that helped me think about what schools I wanted to apply to. Uh, it was always understood in my family that I went to college. My Both of my grandparents were professors at the University of Texas. Everybody mm-hmm. went and got a degree. Um, but I graduated high school, and I just wanted to work and have fun. So I worked and had fun. You, we, you're of the era, Dazed and Confused, that movie with uh, McConaughey. Yes, Top Art Notch, Ma- which is the burger joint mm-hmm. in that movie, is right in my neighborhood. Really? And I still eat at Top Notch every wow. time I go back to Austin. So kid, I don't want to say kids today. These kids today. But your, my nephew, niece and nephews, yours, so they've been thinking about college for 10 years exactly. before college. I didn't think I had I basically everything came more organically for me once I got tired of working and having fun mm-hmm. and thought to myself, well, I'm going to am I going to be a manager of a swimwear shop for the rest of my <laughs> life? No, maybe I should go ahead and go to college. Uh, and so I uh, went off to college and then I have the, the you know, the kids that I mentor today ask me, well, how did you? you choose the school you know how I chose school my mother loved spending summers uh in Boulder in the mountains because my grandfather would teach summers at CU Boulder Mm -hmm. he taught during the school year at UT Austin right uh and because she said she loved the mountains I decided I wanted to go to CU also wow and I applied and went sight unseen wow that's amazing and then I stayed there and did graduate school there and then when I got out of graduate school I was like well what the heck do you do with a graduate degree in economics. I had specialized in econometri- uh, econometrics. I love statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, well, heck, I'll just go back home to Austin. And at that time, if you're an economist, you worked for the state. I mean, so you can see where I'm getting at. If you were to, to look Can't at, do that today. at Ellen, Ellen Beeson, I was at the time, a uh, high school student in Austin, Texas, and, and think, would this girl be chief U.S. economist of Morgan oh, Stanley sure. decades from now? Uh, no one would have drawn that line. And and Boulder and Denver and Colorado in general is is now booming. Yeah, my that, sister lives in Denver now, and it's unbelievable. The housing boom there is just unbelievable. just wild. I I don't know how much of it is attributable to decriminalization of marijuana, and how much of it is organic. They have a burgeon, no pun intended. 
They have a burgeoning tech community there as well. And they have. When I lived there in the 90s, that tech community was really uh, up and coming. The whole complex being built out uh, uh, for it in South South Denver. Um, and it's an incredible because I like areas of North Carolina and, and Texas, there are areas of Colorado that never had a housing boom, so they never, never had a bust. And now they're well above previous peak for home values. Huh. And my sister is tickled, tickled pink that she's already a homeowner there, uh, at least. So she's gaining equity uh, day by That's day. Uh, yeah, so it's... It's uh, it's on fire. Yeah, it's on fire. Let's, Denver uh, and Austin. I think I must, be, I must be good luck for places that I've lived in. All right, let's talk about mentors. Who are some of your early mentors? Uh, so in my career, the very first... I, I think I was lucky right off the bat when I went back to the state of Texas uh, to be assigned to be the right-hand... A uh, woman to Tamara Plout, who was the chief economist at the state of Texas at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, she and I had an amazing partnership. She took me under her wing. Um, and having that kind of slow-paced environment that government is, mm-hmm. uh, uh, going back to the beginning of the, sh- the, the podcast where I said it was a, just a, a, a great time to cultivate deep thinking, I learned a lot from her, and we remain extremely close today. Hmm. Um, also, uh, when I moved on, uh, I had gone there to Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, and then when I went on from there to Nomura Securities, David Ressler, uh, who when he by the time he retired, he had been at Nomura for 26 years, the longest pra- practicing chief economist on Wall Street. Um, Dave was an amazing mentor to me from a market perspective. So taking me from sort of that academic thinking economist um, to how a market economist thinks and how to move into that fast-paced world of working for an investment bank. He and I are both very good friends today, if I can ever catch him when he's off the golf course. <laughs> he's living a very nice retirement right now. Uh, and so that... Those those were very important um, mentors um, in in the the business world. In Texas, I started off at a pretty young age um, in gymnastics, competitive gymnastics, mm-hmm. um, and the coaches there, uh, uh, Jim and, and, and Cheryl, and at Capital Gymnastics in Austin, uh, were were incredible. Let's talk about books. This is the question everybody always asks. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction economics or markets related or not? I'm going to talk about one book. Okay. I'm going to talk about one book because it's the first one that always comes to mind anytime anyone asks me. Uh-oh. And, All right. Okay. So because that's I don't- a lot of, That's so a lot of pressure for one book. It's a lot of pressure for one book. Joe Nocera wrote a book uh-huh. uh, called A Piece of the Action, How the Middle Class Became the Money Class. Um, it goes all the way up through the late 90s. It, it covers the love of Americans, uh, Americans' love affair with credit cards. How uh-huh. did that all come about? How did this credit explosion and debt explosion in the U.S. affect the middle class? It was, now I'm, I'm going to say this from a very nerdy economist perspective. Sure. The book read like a novel. I could not put it down. It was the best book. Wow. It goes right up there with best books, fiction or nonfiction that I've read. I'm going to have to add um, this to my reading list. Unbelievable. And I always Joe told now... myself, if Joe ever reached out and wanted to do an update to the book, because I've covered the consumer in so much depth, the U.S. household in so much depth, and that book singularly has influenced so much of my study around 
the U.S. household and slicing and dicing it by income group and studying the household experience, it is, it's huge. And I always told myself, if Joe calls me and says, help me update this book. I'll take you uh, upstairs to me. I'm assuming you've met Joe over the years. I would love to, and I have never met him He's in on the. He now writes for Bloomberg View. He's upstairs. I know that. He's and one so floor above us. I suppose that was my way of trying he's, to get an invite. He's literally... But, he, like, if I could drill a hole through the ceiling, we're practically under yeah, his desk. But I'm not kidding you. Every economist that comes on my team, if I want them to know the consu- U.S. consumer inside and out, I just give them that book and I say, you need to read this. So let's talk about a time you failed. Tell us about something that didn't go as you expected and, and what you learned from it. It's not that I never failed. So I came up with an example, but it's it's not that I never failed. It's that I was raised in the South, Mm -hmm. in Texas, and there's this sense of perpetual optimism. For some reason, I think when you grow up in a sunny climate (laughs) and every failure is embraced and turned into something positive so that when you look back on it, it's hard to see it as a failure because all I can think of is the positive thing that came out of it. Isn't that a characteristic of America in general? Because in Europe or elsewhere, when a business person fails, it's a black mark. And in the United States, I mean, how many companies did Ford have? How many times did, did Edison fail before they hit their mark? And it seems, you know, there is a second act in American life, but I, I always found that entrepreneurship, that ability to just get up, put dust yourself yeah. off and move on to the next is a uniquely American phenomenon. The it, rest it of the is, world yeah. doesn't act that way. It is, and I think, and I think embracing the failure, um, and this is something that I that I think is great, um, and that the world of finance, I think we do well at Morgan Stanley, or at least promoting it at Morgan Stanley. But I think the world of finance could do better about is uh, uh, embracing when you fall on your face publicly mm-hmm. with a bad call, and say that was a bad call. I thought I had sound research behind it. Turns out I was I was wrong, and then let's move on. People will trust you so much more when you make the next call than if you're one of these. And I've met plenty mm-hmm. that have tried to cover it up over sure. time. Revisionist history. I always said X, Y, and Z. Right. And and believe me, with things like these podcasts, <laughs> you can't go back and have revisionist. It's history a generational anymore. thing. People forget that the internet is forever and. It's amazing. All right, we're. I only have you for a few more minutes. I see your your handler jumping up and down. I have to ask my final two questions. I sound like questions. a performing monkey. No, not at all. Not at all. This is great stuff. So, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or recent graduate who's interested in going into economics as a profession? Uh, I would start more generally by saying, stop worrying about where you're going to be ten to twenty years from now. Worry about where you're going to be a year from now, and then as you get older, widen it out to where am I going to be three years from now, five years from now. Communicate and communicate face-to-face no matter how much your generation hates it because Mm -hmm. it's not the way you were raised. Communicate face-to-face because those of you who do will make it further than those of you who don't. Don't just text your boss. You cannot get body (laughs) language uh, from a text. You just can't. Uh, And people will appreciate that. Uh, uh, For The Economist specifically, it is half about showmanship and mm-hmm. delivery uh, and half about the analytical work that you put into the it. The steak and the sizzle. You have to have the sizzle. Uh, 
and not a lot of economists sizzle because we tend to be nerds and attract nerds to our right. industry. Um, embrace public speaking. Embrace being comfortable in front of people, uh, and you will go much further than your counterpart. That, that's terrific. And then my final and favorite question, what is it that you know about econometrics, investing, markets today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? I wish that I was told, which you never would be told when you're learning economic theory, that it doesn't always make sense. Mm -hmm. Because I think the peril that many of us ran into right after the financial crisis was that all of these economic theories we learned in school made no sense anymore. <laughs> um, and uh, That's funny. only be just beginning with my generation did we start to really fully employ econometrics and statistical modeling and, and economics um, and it's those of us that were able to rely on that more so than trying to make everything fit into a theory that we're able to adapt better after the financial crisis fantastic stuff thank you ellen for being so generous with your time Thanks, Barry. you didn't think we'd go the full 90 minutes but we did uh we have been speaking to ellen zentner she is the chief uh, U.S. economist for Morgan Stanley. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or SoundCloud, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, and you could see any of the other 153 or so such conversations that we've had over the past three years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the wonderful team I have who helps us put this podcast together and then send it out into the world via the technology we were talking about. Medina Parwana is my technical producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>